when you start looking at the great canon of what we assume to be, you know, achievement of genius of success, and you start realizing, oh, wait a second, you know, why are these people all men? Why do they mainly come from Europe or the West or America? Why are they mainly white? Um, and then you start thinking to yourself, there are other people who do exist who have really uh, pushed themselves and you know done amazing things, but we just don't hear about them because they don't fit into this canon of what we assume genius or success looks like. Definitely. So really forgotten women. Yeah, so really forgotten women is my very modest attempt to remedy that and to kind of show to everyone, not just women, but men as well, um, that, you know, what we think of as success or accomplishment needs to be really dramatically redefined and widened because these women are exceptional by anybody's standards, not just by the standards of their gender. Welcome to the Lifestyle Edit Podcast, a show about creative female entrepreneurs and the businesses they've built. I'm your host, the Lifestyle Edit founder, Naomi Mdudu, and each week I deep dive with a female founder on topics like business models and revenue streams, marketing and branding, building a team and scaling, and how they are managing to cultivate a life and business they love, and all on their own terms. Our goal each week is to take you on a narrative journey of the opportunities and challenges in business right now, and offer insights you can immediately apply in growing or starting your business. So Zing, welcome to the Lifestyle Edit podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you because we're approaching the eve of your book, your book launch. I think it's so it's coming out this week. So this is part of our International Women's Day special. So so tell me, first and foremost, how how did this all happen? Well, it was it's been a pretty crazy journey. So basically I signed on to do the Forgotten Women book series sometime in the spring of 2017. And I've been working flat out since spring of 2017, writing these four books, um, the first four books of the series. So Forgotten Women, the Scientists and Forgotten Women, the Leaders are both coming out on International Women's Day this year. And the next two writers and artists are coming out in September of this year as well. Wow. Yeah. So so, so you've been a busy lady. Yeah, I mean, I've written probably more words than I have in my entire life <laughs> over the last year and a half, I think. Um, but it's, I mean, it's been an it's been an incredible privilege, really, to be able to write all these stories because I honestly feel like I've walked a, several thousand miles in like several hundred women's shoes now, and it's been so great to learn about all their individual stories and their biographies as well. Because what was what was the catalyst for this? What kind of sparked the idea? So, I mean, I've always been really interested in women's histories. And I don't know if maybe this is the byproduct of me entering my late 20s. Um, I'm about to turn, I'm going to turn 30 this year. Um, I just became very interested in this entire idea of history and biography. Um, you know, I think the cliche is that when you get old, you want to start going to Ancestry.com to start figuring out. <laughs> what you're from. Uh, and, you know, I'd always been really blessed with the presence of amazing women in my own family history. Um, so my grandmother was born in Japan. She was raised in Hong Kong and she lived through World War II in a Japanese occupation. Wow. Uh, and, you know, just hearing her stories via my mother have been incredible. She was, you know, she was smuggling food to POWs in like internment camps. 
And, you know, that kind of got me thinking. There are so many women like that in, you know, pretty much everyone's histories. Everyone's like family has probably one woman who, you know, really pushed the envelope, really excelled. And she might not even be known about. And when you start thinking about that, then you start looking at the great canon of what we assume to be, you know, achievement of genius of success and you start realizing oh wait a second you know why are these people all men why do they mainly come from Europe or the West or America why are they mainly white Um, and then you start thinking to yourself there are other people who do exist who have really uh, pushed themselves and you know done amazing things but we just don't hear about them because they don't fit into this canon of what we assume genius or success looks like so really forgotten women. Yeah, so really forgotten women is my very modest attempt to remedy that and to kind of show to everyone, not just women, but men as well, um, that you know, what we think of as success or accomplishment needs to be really dramatically redefined and widened because these women are exceptional by anybody's standards, not just by the standards of their gender. Uh, and they should really be celebrated and spoken of in the same breath as, you know, some people like Einstein, people like Plato, but, you know, they're not. Why is visibility important? I asked you that question because just as I'm hearing you speak, it made me think of that movie. Is it Hidden Voices? Hidden Oh, Hidden, figure, figure. hidden Figures, that's it. Yeah. And again, the, especially as a black woman, hearing the, the, the stories of this woman and the contributions that they made at NASA, I was just like, how on earth do, <laughs> does everybody not know about this? Especially me as a, as a black woman. I, it was crazy that that story, you know, hadn't been told or was not, you know, known until people had watched that movie. Why is visibility so important? Yeah, I mean, the thing, and it's funny you mentioned hidden figures, because I do write about that story in my in my book as well, it's in Scientists. And the thing about the NASA scientists is that very few people knew about it until, and I have to give full credit to the author Margot Lee Shetterly, who actually came up with the book. And she basically looked at, she was basically raised in the same area as NASA at the time. And she kind of realized, much as I did while writing the books, that you know, she was surrounded by accomplished black women who were scientists and were like engineers and stuff. And they always talked about, you know, the women who were in, the women who would then go into go in to become, you know, the people in hidden figures. But nobody had written about it. Nobody had actually done the research. And so she was just like, I, I'll, I guess I'll do it. <laughs> and that was how the book came about. And that's the that's the book that the film is based on. And, you know, that just goes to show that, you know, these books and these movies are coming out, what, in the 2000s? Uh, these stories, there are billions of them. It just takes the energy, the time, the inclination to unearth these kind of histories. And I think on one hand, it is really depressing because you're like, why haven't I heard about these people before? But on the other hand, I think it's hugely exciting because it kind of means that everything in history is up for grabs, you know? Yeah. And I think that's incredibly exciting. That is so true. And you know, I feel like issues affecting women have been kind of part of the cultural conversation, especially since, um, you know, the presidential election in 2016. You know, now we have the Me Too movement. We're speaking a lot more about women in work, flexibility, women in leadership, you know, solutions for the pay gap. Um, How do you feel like, do you think that that's been a catalyst for kind of flagging up some of these stories and kind of 
bringing attention to these issues and creative people exploring it, whether it's through film, through books. Yeah, I think so, definitely. I think in an, in this very strange way, and I actually interviewed um, a, an Asian-American comedian called Margaret Cho a couple of months ago, and we were talking about this, about how there seems to be so much more of an appetite to hear from women to participate in women's issues. And she was saying, in a weird way, uh, Donald Trump actually made people sit up and pay attention. He, The election of Trump made people suddenly go, wait a second, why is this, you know, why is this misogynist in the White House? And if we can't, if we can't um, impeach him, then we're going to go after every other, <laughs> we're going to go after like all the other issues that have been um, affecting and like, uh, you know, bugging women since the dawn on time, because it's almost like his presence in the White House is a taunt to women. And I think women are really rising to that challenge. It's so true. And I think also it showed us how complacent we are, that we thought that this, so many of these things were a non-issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think many people did not expect him to be elected president. I mean, definitely, I, I, I didn't. I was completely, I was shocked. Um, I went to bed at about 2 a.m. So it must have been about 10 a.m., 10 p.m. kind of in America, assuming that I would wake up and Hillary Clinton would be president. And that didn't happen. And I think that was a real wake-up call to a lot of people. I think it's going to be one of those moments where we're going to have to, we'll all have our story to tell our children of where we were, what we were doing when that moment happened. I was in New York at the time watching it. And I remember when we first arrived, everyone, we had a, my friend had a dinner party and we were all like, no, it'll be fine. And, you know, the spirits were really high. And then it got to that point where it was just like, oh my God, is this actually happening? (laughs) We all just left and we were on the subway on the way home. And it was just this eerie feeling in the city, like, oh, my God, like, this is going to be a moment that none of us will forget. Yeah, it sounds absolutely hideous. And I was talking to, you know, colleagues in the US who said that when they walked to work in the morning, they saw people just crying in the street, just like publicly weeping. And I think, yeah, it, it was a complete shock to everyone, but especially Americans. Totally. And it, so it must have been really um, gratifying for you as you started kind of exploring and doing these research on these women. Like, where did you start? Did you have a very clear idea when you started working on the book, the types of women that you wanted to feature? Were there kind of women that you already had on your hit list that you wanted to explore more? How did that curation process work? So we can't, what I wanted to do was, and I was really, really adamant about this, that I wanted to make it as inclusive and representative as I saw the world. So I didn't grow up in the UK. I grew up in Singapore uh, and came here when I was 16, 17. And when I was growing up, you would barely see any Asian women in like the mainstream media. And that always, I think it bugged me a lot more than I than I realized at the time, because it gave me such a narrow minded idea of what as I said before, accomplishment and successes, you know, we talked about, you know, the man who founded Singapore, who is a white Londoner called Stamford Raffles. Um, Yeah. And, you know, he is the one with all the statues in the country. And for years, I just never questioned that. I just took it as a given, you know, the place that I was born on, born in, lived on, was did not exist before English people discovered it, which is completely ridiculous. Um, and you know, that was, that was, that was really what made me think 
I want to make this as inclusive and representative as possible so that, you know, if someone buys this book for their teenage daughter, she's going to read it and be like, oh, amazing. People, women were doing stuff all over the world. It's not just in Europe. It's not just in America. You know, people were doing cool shit all over. (laughs) No, definitely. Definitely. Um, Are there any kind of stories um, or women who particularly stand out? Any stories that you can share that people can look forward to delving deeper into in the book? So one of my favourites, and she's actually on the cover of the book for the leaders, is Shirley Chisholm, um, who was the first black woman to run for Democratic presidential as Democratic presidential nominee. Oh, wow. Uh, So this is before Obama. This is before Hillary Clinton. And she knew she wasn't going to win. And and this is what I really like about her. She ran in, I think, the 70s. um, And she basically did it because she was like, well, someone has to. Someone's got to break the glass ceiling here because not nobody else is going to, everyone else is going to have an uphill battle to get on the ticket. So she took on this huge challenge knowing that she was not going to win. And in one way, I find that almost more admirable than if she did win because she fully knew that the challenges stacked up against her were so insurmountable that she barely stood a chance and she did it anyway. And it's like that classic kind of, nonetheless, she persevered. Yeah, It's like the epitome of that because I think there's something very brave about knowing that you might not be the one to pull down that statue you might not be the one to kick through that glass ceiling but you're laying the way for other people too definitely I think it was Shonda Rhimes actually she did a speech that was quite similar to that and was saying that yeah it's amazing what she's been able to accomplish um with all of the shows that she's producing but yeah there have been so many women that have just done their their dents in that glass ceiling that have made what she's doing today possible I love that story that is that's amazing um so there's a lot going on at the moment now, you know, just just recently the mayor's office in London announced his kind of behind every city campaign that's really so 2018 they're really kind of dedicating to support and nurture the participation and advancement of women. Do, what do you think that those initiatives work? How important are they? I think they're really important and you know, I'm going to separate the actual if it, like efficacy, like the entire does, are they going to work question from like this, the symbolic value alone, I think is really worth it in that you have the mayor of one of the most powerful cities in the world, like throwing his weight behind gender equality. And I think that makes a really powerful statement, especially because Sadiq Khan is, you know, an Asian Muslim man. Um, I think that makes it all the more powerful because it's a real example of, you know, how intersectional politics can be that everyone can be in it together everyone can show solidarity you don't have to come from the group that you're you know approaching to understand their concerns and to fight for them I think that's really valuable I mean when it comes to will it actually work I mean of course with you know every kind of political initiative it kind of depends on how much effort and support and especially financial uh help they're willing to give I think anything like this is worth doing it's just a matter of are they backing it up with the resources people need to actually do something it's so true and I think 
I, I, you know, we're working with the mayor on this campaign and on the launch day, you know, one of the things that came up is that it's important to for it to not just be women who are supporting this kind of movement. It's about women also inviting men to come to the table and be our allies rather than it being just a fight for women. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, and I honestly do believe that, you know, patriarchy affects men just as much as women. Um, you know, when people have to spend their entire lives laboring under, you know, outdated, oppressive gender norms, that is something that affects men as much as women. Oh, completely, completely. Um, because the, the issues right now are very complex. And, you know, at times the world can seem like a very scary place. And I know there'll be lots of people listening who really want to make a contribution, but just don't know where to start. Do you have any suggestions of how people can kind of get involved? There's so much stuff that people can do to get involved in the fight for gender equality. You know, um, think about the issues that affect you the most, you know, whether it's, for example, uh, you're really passionate about domestic violence, you know, you're passionate about raising awareness of like uh, gender equality, like you just need to look up Facebook groups, look up charities, look up women's refuges. All these places are absolutely desperate for volunteers and help, not least because, for example, domestic violence refuges are suffering an insane number of cuts from the government. Um, you know, even stuff that is like going down to a shelter, volunteering for a couple of hours, going down to a food bank, because actually poverty, uh, poverty actually affects women a lot more than it does men. You know, stuff like this, is a really easy way to make a difference. It might not, you know, be as kind of, uh, I don't want to say like, not empowering. What am I trying? Stuff like this might not seem like as glamorous, um, but it is kind of like the hard slog of activism and volunteering is actually what makes a women's movement tick. You know, stuff like the Women's March is amazing because it empowers thousands of people to feel like they're part of something because you can be physically present but you know just as important is stuff like volunteering petitioning your local mp uh you know helping out on shelters donating money to charities if you don't have the time to you know volunteer you know all this stuff is is just as important it's so true and sometimes it doesn't even mean going beyond what you would normally do. Um, a friend of mine, Jill Hilbrenner, started an incredible group called Ladies Who Love Bomb. And it was after the first Women's March. And, you know, again, people just wanted to know how they can continue to contribute. Um, so, you know, as a group of friends, we meet up regularly anyway. So she's like, why don't we do a once a month meetup where we can invite you know, organizations that are kind of supporting these, these causes. And we just donate a certain amount um, once a month. And we kind of sit and have conversations about some of these issues and hear from, you know, the horse's mouth, what's kind of going on on the, on the ground. So not only are we putting our dollars there, um, we are also educating ourselves. So, you know, when you're, you're out in the world and you're interacting with people, it also is coming from an informed place. And besides, we'd be going out and eating and drinking wine anyway. So you kind of kill a few birds with one stone. That sounds amazing. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of stuff that people should be doing. Because, you know, it's not, it's, you know, the fact that you donate is amazing. But also the fact that, you know, you're educating yourselves and you're going out there and advocating for, you know, these people and these charities. That's really valuable as well. 
Because do you think, you know, with the Women's March and, you know, the, you know, the Me Too movement, you know, all we had at the Golden Globes, everybody wearing black. Is this a moment in time or is this a start of a real kind of lasting change? I really hope it is a start of real lasting change. And I think, I mean, I, you know, I feel like something feels qualitatively different about this moment. I I don't know about you, but it feels like things are changing. Like people who you would not expect to, you know, throw their support like into uh, the fight for gender equality, you know, they're doing it. You know, Hollywood actresses who, you know, normally are expected to just like sit down and not have any political opinions are actually saying really radical things. Just look at Viola Davis at the Women's March. I don't think that, uh, I don't think that this is just a fleeting moment. I really hope, and I'm sure I'm really not the only one, that this is the start of actual lasting change. But, you know, from everything that I've written about, from all my research and into these books, you know, it wasn't so long ago that women were literally just bound to stay at home, that women couldn't even go to universities, you know, and this is, this was still happening in like the early 20th century. It boggles my mind, it boggles my mind that this is a hundred years since women got the right to vote. That is insane to me. And just hearing that there are no statues in London that are dedicated to women. So that's one of the things that the mayor's going to be doing. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I know. It's 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 completely unfathomable. And I feel like and I feel like on one hand there's something quite reassuring about it because you look back and you think, okay, it was it's it feels pretty terrible now, but if you look back a hundred years, God forbid like hundred and fifty years, two hundred years people were, it was so much, so much worse. Um, So we've made actually quite a lot of progress in what's quite a small amount of time. But obviously when you're underground and you're watching time tick by, it doesn't feel like a very short amount of time at all. But, you know, you just hope that, I guess the arc of history just bends towards justice to like kind of paraphrase that quote. Um, And that, you know, we are in the middle of a moment that people will in a few centuries time look back on it and say this was it this is when everything changed for women exactly yeah you'll have somebody else writing books similar to yours talking about this moment in time too and that's why I think it's really great that you broke the books up and you kind of really focused on those areas so you can go deeper into kind of the contributions in those different sectors Oh, yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's funny what you start realizing when you look at these people in their various, I guess, in maybe industries is the wrong word, maybe they're like various spheres of influence. So for instance, when I was writing The Scientist, I didn't realize that for so long, women had just been barred from higher education. That to re- me really boggled my mind. So I went to, I went to Cambridge um, in, the, in the 2000s. And I didn't realize that up until the 70s, I think, Cambridge, there were certain colleges that still didn't admit women. You're joking. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I think the one one of the few remaining colleges uh, to, to uh, hold on to like its men-only title actually had a joke funeral for the college when women were admitted. <gasps> you are kidding me. Yeah. So, you know, we look at these institutions as being like, oh, you know, like, uh, sanctified halls of learning where like knowledge is key and you know the only thing that matters is the value of your brain but actually 
they are just as subject to discrimination and prejudice of everyone else. Um, and, you know, it's not really it's not really been that long. Like the 70s is what only a couple of decades ago. And, you know, these women in, in books like The Scientist, the women who have achieved stuff have achieved stuff under insane amounts of prejudice, like under insane amounts of restrictions. There's one woman um, who actually had to dress up as a man to get into intellectual salons just to be able to talk to people who were on her like level to be able to discuss science with people who were also scholars. You know, that to me is absolutely crazy, but it just goes to show that, I mean, you you literally cannot keep a good woman down. Like women will find ways to like crack through that glass, glass ceiling, and walk through that door, you know, no matter what. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. A quick break from today's show to talk to you all about our sponsor, Breather. Breather offer dedicated workspace in great locations in cities like London, LA, New York, San Francisco, Toronto, all without the big monthly price tag. So think beautiful spaces minus membership fees or commitment. All you need to do is pay by the hour or by the day and reschedule or cancel for free for up to two hours before your reservation. For more information, just head to breather.com. I don't know how we, you know, I don't think that there's a right way to go about it. But I guess my question is, how do we balance kind of holding these institutions to account that still have these kind of archaic practices and policies, but without shaming them so much that you kind of cut the conversation completely and make them even more resistant to change? I mean, I think the unique thing about this moment is that actually a lot of institutions and male dominated places and just, you know, men themselves are actually reflecting on themselves quite a lot and wondering how they could actually change, like have what they've done in the past. Was it wrong? Um, And I think that's a really good opportunity to start conversations, you know, whether that's with your friends or your family, your like male colleagues about, you know, how you can work together to make things to make change happen. Um, I think it, it's really it's really good because then it's not about why are you calling me a sexist? Why are you implying that I'm a misogynist? Are you trying to say that I hate women? People are now starting to realize that actually institutional structures, you know, like Miramax, like the Weinstein Company can actually be just as can actually be bad and not protect, not protective of women at all. And yeah. it's not as they were filled with people like Harvey Weinstein it was just because they were filled with people who closed a blind eye completely and you know it just becomes such a systemic part of the culture that um yeah I think uh, what's been insightful for a lot of women is I don't even think that they realized that they had um they'd been harassed because you know it may have just been the working culture but you know where they were yeah And I think, um, so going back to when I spoke to Margaret Cho, she was saying that when she came up in the comedy scene of the 80s, she just kind of had loads of stuff happen and she just forgot about it. She was like, oh, that's just the way it is. I guess I'll just like deal with it and move on. Um, And I think what's really good about this moment is that it offers a lot of people the chance to reflect and to realize that what happened was wrong. And moving forward we really have to make sure that it doesn't happen again to a younger generation of women totally because 
you've spent so much of your career really putting a light on some of these kind of most pressing issues affecting women today. Was that intentional or did you kind of just naturally flow into producing that type of content? So I did a journalism degree um, for my master's. And at the time, I really just wanted to go into fashion and entertainment journalism. So I spent most of my early career working at fashion magazines like Dazed and Confused. And uh, working at somewhere like Dazed offered me the chance to be really creative and have a lot of editorial independence. Um, One of the things I was asked to do was to curate a themed a, con- a themed month of content around women um, and when was this was probably we had it I think this was around the time uh, Lupita Nyong'o won a an Oscar for 12 Years a Slave so she was on our front cover yes because you wrote the piece about the rise in online feminists was it yeah so that yes. was what's kind of started it all off um, I wrote that piece about online feminism and how young women were using creativity and the internet to kind of put across new ideas and feminism. Um, and that kind of started me off because I was like, I, I love, I love like reading about this. I love writing about this. Um, I wish I could do more of it. And then I was offered the job at Broadly and it was basically like amazing because it was everything that I was interested in um, that I could do, that I couldn't do at a, just a straight fashion magazine. Because there must be, there's lots of things that are constantly happening, you know, head, things in the headline, especially since since Trump went into power. Have you ever had those moments where you've had to create a piece of content because it's really timely, but you may not have necessarily had the time to really kind of sit with it? How do you balance moments like that? Most of the time, like what my kind of approach to journalism is that Nowadays, the news cycle is so fast that you just have to let stories sit for a little bit to kind of figure out this is what we think of them. This is how we're going to write them up. This is going to be our take. And we can stand by that for the rest of time until this, you know, because we've thought this through. I think there's kind of a real push towards people having instant opinions on things, um, which I think is actually quite bad because it doesn't allow for people to kind of take the time to think through all the implications of what they're about to say um and I think you know that's one thing that I think is quite bad about a social media driven news cycle in that everyone is trying to be out the gate to be the first one to say something about what they think about an issue um when actually you know as you've seen with stories like Trump with Harvey Weinstein you know, the issues keep evolving long after that first initial report. Definitely. Because how how do you approach kind of curating the types of content that you're producing online? And just for anyone who's unfamiliar with Broadly, can you talk a little bit about the diversity of the content? Yeah. So I joined Broadly about three years ago. Um, It's a feminist news site. Uh, We cover everything from politics to pop culture. Um, My last the last thing I did for them was uh, I watched the men's rights activist edit of Star Wars in which they edited out all the women and reviewed it like a serious film. Oh, yes, um, yes, yes. I love yeah, that. So, so it's everything from uh, really serious politics to just more lighthearted stuff, which is a range that I absolutely love. And and how do you how do you kind of curate what comes in? 
what what appears online because I'm sure you're constantly being pitched stories and of course yeah the news cycle is just kind of going on overdrive every day how what's your approach to kind of curating the content I think anything that says something new about the world that we live in or the issues that we talk about um you know so for instance the Star Wars story that I did was basically because I'd seen so many people talk about it online and tweet, you know, the funny responses of actors and the director, Rian Johnson, to the idea that an edit like this even existed, but nobody had actually sat down and watched it. Um, so that's why, so that's what I did. Um, so it's all about finding like new angles on stuff that's already been floating around. Like there's so many publications out there nowadays and, you know, you have to make yourself different. You have to distinguish yourself from them. And to a large extent, that kind of depends on what your USP is. Like, who are you as a journalist? Who are you as a publication? What is the audience you're trying to serve? And once you have a really good idea of who you are and what you stand for, I mean, the whole business that everything will just fall into place. But I guess, have you ever had moments where there is that attention between a story that you think is really meaningful and worthwhile and you know the reality that and as it, as an editor especially with a lot of the spend going from print to online you know you have to get those numbers every day there's those kind of key metrics that you need to be wary of and how do you deal with that kind of balance of putting out things that are you think are really meaningful and need to be out there but may not necessarily do as well as a you know another type of content I think it's it's a tough one. I think that's something that a lot of editors struggle with because, you know, you may take on a story that you think is really worthy and really significant and it's going to, you know, you might know that it's going to underperform because it's not going to be uh, a clickable, entertaining, funny, lighthearted piece. But I still think it's really important for editors and publications to do these stories because they more those stories more than the lighthearted stuff make up what readers think you are. Um, you know, at Broadly, we've always covered abortion rights and reproductive rights. Um, we've done that consistently, even though, uh, especially in the UK, at least before Theresa May tried to jump into bed with the DUP, which is an anti-abortion Irish party, Northern Irish party, um, a lot of people were not talking about abortion as an issue in the UK. It was kind of thought to be, we've got the right to have an abortion. Well, why do you want to cover it? And of course, you know, when Theresa May tried to have a deal with the DUP, then people were like, oh, actually, abortion is a really important issue and we should probably try and cover it. You know, Broadly was already there long before that. Um, and that's not to, like, big ourselves up or anything. It's It was literally one of our editorial tenants. You know, when we started up as a publication, uh, it was started based in America. And one of the key things was we are going to cover the fight for reproductive rights. And that's something that extends into everything we do. Um, a lot of the times these stories don't do as well as like the big hitters, the you know, the high trafficking entertainment pieces or whatever. But we still think it's a really important part of our brand. And uh, yeah, I that is exactly why I love I love the website, because it is that kind of perfect mix. And I think especially with you know, the state of the world right now, it's important to be able to rely on a website that really kind of champions some of those stories that other people aren't willing to tell. So just to, to round up, what who are some of the women who have made the biggest impacts on your life, whether that's people that you know personally or just by watching them from afar? So I guess 
I said I talked about my grandmother at the beginning of the podcast, and I think I I never knew her. I mean, she died when I was really really little. Um, by all accounts, I was a complete brat when I visited her and just cried all the time. Um, but everything I've heard from my mum, for instance, just makes me think that she was an unbelievable woman. Um, you know, just having such a cosmopolitan life at the turn of the century. You know, she was born in Japan, raised in Hong Kong. She was she was also she also lived in Shanghai for a time. She married my grandfather, who by all accounts was also like an invertebrate cad. So she had to deal with that as well. She raised um, seven children. Uh, two of them, so two of them through the Second World War. Um, my aunt, who is the oldest among all the seven kids, talks about how the war was so bad that you know her mum would give her would they would have one egg, a boiled egg to eat, and rice, and that was it. That was all they had to eat for a week, and they'd give the egg to uh, the oldest son because it was like traditional. You just gave you just yeah. gave the favored son the like more food but you know my my grandmother was still trying to kind of figure out a way for the family to survive during the Japanese occupation in World War II and she was like risking her life to go to to go past all these Japanese guards to smuggle food through to the POWs you know all this kind of stuff just makes me think oh god you know you're not the only woman who lived through that and you already did something absolutely amazing and you just think what other women were doing stuff that's absolutely amazing that they just took to their graves and never talked to anyone about. Yeah, yeah. And that I find really fascinating. Are there any people that you that have kind of mentored you from afar just by kind of watching the example and the way that they conduct themselves and lead their lives or their careers? Uh, I'm trying to... So... The reason I ask is because I think sometimes, you know, there's a lot of talk about mentorship and I think people always think that it's, you know, this mentor is someone that you have to go and have coffee with, you know, every so often. But I think I've been mentored by so many incredible women who I've never even met just by, you know, reading their work or seeing the example of, you know, how they lead their teams and their businesses. Um, so it doesn't always have to be someone that you have a direct relationship with. I mean... It's kind of, I, I've not, the funny thing is, I've not really thought about mentoring in that way. In a weird way, I feel like my, the person who mentored me the most who got me on this career in journalism was actually a man who came to my university when I was doing journalism and just sort of very casually just stumped for me to join his company, um, to join his publication, and was just very gently, casually just being like, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, you should be able to do that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. You know, and it, just that kind of quiet encouragement that was exactly what I needed because it didn't put me on a pedestal yeah. um, and like put the fear of failing into me but was just constant encouragement and I actually actually there was there was someone um um who mentored me really early on in my career when I was a uh, when I was an intern at is going to really date it's really going to date me I was like an internet diva magazine in like 2000 oh yes diva <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna look this up because I'm really scared I'm gonna like say her name wrong um so at the time Jane Chiselska was the editor and she was the first ever editor I ever worked under I was so green I was literally scared all the time of doing something wrong 
Um, and she, and at the end of the internship, she kind of took me into this meeting room and I was like, oh my gosh, she's going to tell me I'm terrible. And then she actually just looked at me and like looked over all the stuff that I'd written. And then she was like, you can do this if you want. You know, like just, that was like so simple. Yeah. Um, she was just like, if you wanted to do this, you can. And it was almost like the way that she said it wasn't, wasn't like you're a genius. You could do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be. But it was almost because she said it in such a low key way that kind of emphasized the fact that I had a choice and that I had the power and agency to pursue something. I think that was that. I love that. Big, big impact on me. It was so low key as well. I mean, you know, like she probably doesn't even remember saying it. <laughs> but I find that it is those moments. It's those passing comments where that person just, yeah, thought just said that in passing. But it's when you reflect back on it that you're like, oh, yeah, like totally. I've, I've totally got that. I can totally do that. Um, yeah. Oh, that's such a great example. I love that. So, yeah. OK, so yeah. what's next? What's next? I know that you've you've been working on documentaries and you know lots of exciting projects like what's next and how can people um interact with you well i am on social media so mainly on twitter at miss zing i'm also on instagram under miss zing as well but with a underscore in between the miss and the zing it's mainly because i don't you know I don't expect people to learn how to spell my name because it, i mean it took a very long time for me to learn how to spell it when i was a kid myself <laughs> and yeah so you can keep up to date with me there and also look out for the next two books for the lead, for the writers and the artists coming out in September. Um, so I'm working on those two right now. And, you know, obviously this week is the launch of the first two. So fingers crossed it's all yes. going to go. It will do. And uh, everybody go out and grab it because it's amazing. And thank you again for shedding light on all of these incredible stories. I cannot wait to start devouring them. thank you so much for having me so that's it for this week's episode of the lifestyle edit podcast you can download more episodes of the show and subscribe in apple podcasts or itunes if you enjoyed what you heard we would love a review or recommendation it's the number one way for us to share these stories and insights with as many creative female entrepreneurs as possible And don't forget, all of the information on how to join the TLE community is in the show notes or simply head to thelifestyleedit.com to sign up.